Welcome to the Sensemaking in a Changing World podcast, where we explore the kind of thinking we need to navigate a positive way forward. I'm your host, Maura Gamble, permaculture educator and global ambassador, filmmaker, eco-villager, food forester, mother, practivist, and all-round lover of thinking, communicating, and acting regeneratively. For a long time, it's been clear to me that to shift trajectory to a thriving one-planet way of life, we first need to shift our thinking. The way we perceive ourselves in relation to nature, self, and community is the core. So this is true now more than ever, and even the way change is changing is changing. Unprecedented changes are happening all around us at a rapid pace. So how do we make sense of this? To know which way to turn, to know what action to focus on, so our efforts are worthwhile and nourishing and are working towards resilience, regeneration and reconnection. What better way to make sense than to join together with others in open, generative conversation? In this podcast, I'll share conversations with my friends and colleagues, people who inspire and challenge me in their ways of thinking, connecting and acting. These wonderful people are thinkers, doers, activists, scholars, writers, leaders, farmers, educators, people whose work informs permaculture and spark the imagination of of what a post-COVID, climate-resilient, socially just future could look like. Their ideas and projects help us to make sense in this changing world, to compost and digest the ideas and to nurture the fertile ground for new ideas, connections and actions. Together we'll open up conversations in the world of permaculture design, regenerative thinking, community action, earth repair, eco-literacy and much more. I can't wait to share these conversations with you. Over the last three decades of personally making sense of the multiple crises we face, I always return to the practical and positive world of permaculture with its ethics of earth care, people care and fair share. I've seen firsthand how adaptable and responsive it can be in all contexts, from urban to rural, from refugee camps to suburbs. It helps people make sense of what's happening around them and to learn accessible design tools to shape their habitat positively and to contribute to cultural and ecological regeneration. This is why I've created the Permaculture Educators Program, to help thousands of people to become permaculture teachers everywhere through an interactive online dual certificate of permaculture design and teaching. We sponsor global perma-youth programs, women's self-help groups in the global south, and teens in refugee camps. So anyway, this podcast is sponsored by the Permaculture Education Institute and our Permaculture Educators Program. If you'd like to find more about permaculture, I've created a four-part permaculture video series to explain what permaculture is and, and also how you can make it your livelihood as well as your way of life. We'd love to invite you to join our wonderfully inspiring, friendly and supportive global learning community. So I welcome you to share each of these conversations and I'd also like to suggest you create a local conversation circle to explore the ideas shared in each show and discuss together how this makes sense in your local community and environment. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I meet and speak with you today, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. In this episode of Sensemaking in a Changing World, I'm delighted to be joined by Megan Patrick, two-fifths of artist and family. The insights, stories and music they share about living their values, simplifying their lives, radicalising their home economy, creatively responding to what it means to be fully human and being in love and kindness in these times. 
Megan Patrick are artists, makers, writers, creators, urban farmers, urban foresters, unschoolers, living on a small plot in urban Dalesford, on a fraction of the energy and money of typical households, and yet thriving. Meg works for David Holmgren for two days a week, but the rest of her time and Patrick's time are in the gift economy. Meg and Patrick describe their way of life as permacultural neo-peasantry, and together we explore their approach to home, community, education, money, work, travel, freedom, and contribution. So come and join us on this wonderful journey of of life through the eyes of Meg and Patrick. Welcome to the show, um, Meg and Patrick. It's so wonderful to have you here. So I'm I'm calling in from uh, the land of the Gubby Gubby people here, and um, also the Jinnaburra people. And I and I'd like to um, acknowledge and pay respects to the elders here. Um, I'm also originally from the land of the Wurundjeri people, the Kulin Nation, and it's not far from where you are, okay. a little bit further, but where are you calling in from? Yeah, so this is also the land of the Kulin Nation, uh, the land of the Jara people. Mm. Yeah, we'd also like to pay our respects to uh, yeah, the ancestors and elders and um, yeah, all First Nations people watching today mm. or, or listening today. So thank you. Mm. Well, it's so great to have you on the show. This, this particularly, this show is all about exploring different ways that people are making sense of what's going on in the world right now, and um, but but have been for a while. And I know this is this has been a life path that you've both been walking for a long time now, and have so much insight into how we can make sense of it. And something I I was just looking at some of your materials before we came on and I love the way that you express what you're doing as performance art. This, you know, this whole idea of artist as family is being performance about, it's performance art about how you live, how you get food, how you move about. Just want to talk a little bit about that and how you describe yourselves as artists and and um, what, what that means in terms of neo-peasantry um, is the way you describe this way of living, permaculture, neo-peasantry. I think maybe that's a really good place to start because yeah, it kind of frames every other part of the conversation, I think. Yeah, that's great. That's a really juicy, chunky beginning place. Um, shall I yes. start? Um, yeah, so let's just uh, maybe start with um, our ancestors, our peasant ancestors from various parts of Europe. And the Middle East. And the Middle East. Um, land-bonded peoples who had many holidays, seasonal holidays, to celebrate together um, on common land, usually where the festivals took place was was on the commons. Um, uh, Peasants had throughout, particularly through um, up until the Middle Ages, uh, had lots of different rights, rights of passage and rights of spring and rights of harvest. And so this was all celebrated with dance and song and uh, homemade um, alcohols. And um, some of the celebrations um, would go from a kind of serious uh, intent and a kind of calling on the dead and calling on ancestors uh, through to sort of... um, and over the course of, of a few days would, would break down into sort of 
lots of grief release, lots of um, orgiastic behavior, um, lots of uh, uh, connection with place and particularly a kind of animist sensibility to world. And so this isn't really the typical narrative that modern subjects of capital um, view peasantry. Uh, it's always used or quite often used in a pejorative sense. And there are many um, peoples who have come to Australia in recent times that have come from peasant ancestries who are really running away from a kind of what I would call a fooled or collapsed peasantry, where some larger um, control mechanism of state or communism or fascism or church has um, really uh, completely disabled the, 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 the performative and the celebratory and the connectedness of, of the peasantry. So it comes with a really bad rap. And I feel like, I guess, as neo-peasants um, performing, um, uh, I guess, a, a land bondedness and bringing ritual back to a country that is stolen and we sit so um, problematically upon and in. Um, but to stay just in that story of, uh, of a no belonging place is I think more dangerous and more uh, damaging to, to the land. And so we've found ways in to connect with um, local Jarrah uh, culture, local Jarrah people, um, the land itself, the biota itself, and the forest just near here, which is a really important place for many rituals and many the bush school that we run, which we might talk about a bit later, um, the men's and women's and non-binary groups that we have around fire circles in there, the coming together and sharing food with neighbours who are after a working bee of, um, you know, pulling tyres out of the creek and uh, planting trees, etc. cetera. So um, I feel like in many ways for, for a number of years we've been re-performing um, what our ancestors knew, um, connection to neighbourhood, connection to place. And doing that, um, as I said, sitting in, in that troubled place of um, land dispossession, which is originally our land dispossession. My, my, a lot of my ancestors came here as convicts. Um, but so, you know, the story of European peasantry being dispossessed is the same story. It's the connect, well, it's not the same story, but it's a con the connected story with um, Indigenous dispossession here. So I feel like, in, and just to finish on that, um, that we both started in the arts, Meg as a writer, me in the visual arts, and permaculture has really been a way of, um, it had been a wonderful exit strategy from what we would perceive as Western art practice, which is very sort of rarefied and um, getting getting art back into habitats thanks of of everyday life and um and that the create and creativity is particularly um when when we became parents um just to see the unbounding creativity of children and and then looking at our own very rarefied and very sort of alienated art practices and thinking there's something wrong with this story and so I feel like that that's it in a nutshell, really. Mm -hmm. That's the, the reclaiming of what we've lost, reconnecting to our land that, that, that wasn't 
that we have no ancestral um, connection to, that we're making ancestral connection to. Um, and uh, the, the reinvibing of a community, um, community approach to creativity and culture making. Mm. Yeah. That's, there's so many, like, there was a juicy question, there's so many juicy answers in that that I want to pick up on. Um, the, the whole idea of, of that uncomfortable place that we, that we are in, I think this is, this is a, I don't, can you maybe unpack that a little bit about how you've, how you've approached that? I mean, you did mention a bit, but I think this is something that so many people are sitting with now and somehow get a bit frozen and stuck in that space. Mm. So I wonder whether you could maybe share a bit more about how to unstick in that that really difficult conversation I think that many people find themselves in and not knowing how to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, First I'd like to say I think it's really important that we stay with the trouble, um, that we stay with the discomfort, with the the ickiness, the, the guilt, the shame, all of these feelings I think are really important that we sit with and that we don't just say, oh, everything's going to be okay or just rush on to the next thing or buy the next thing or, or yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's important that we um, honour all of our emotions, the positive ones that feel positive and the ones that don't. Um, and I don't think that we could give other people advice about how to unstick. I think we could just tell our story and how what what worked for us. Um, and sitting sitting in that place of discomfort was a big part of it. And I think also living in a culture where we are told from all angles how to feel and what to value. Um, when we decided that we didn't want to live <laughs> within the grips of that culture so tightly anymore, mm. um, that also working out what we wanted as individuals who are alive at this very delicate <laughs> point in history at the moment, what do, what is what do we want as individuals? What do we want as a partnership, as parents, as a family? How do we want to be? in our neighbourhood, in our community, in, in the world further further afield. Yeah, how do we want to, how do we want to act? How do we want to think? How do we want to get our food? How do we want to interrelate with, with humans and more than humans? Um, yeah, that, that was a lot of questioning and um, really important to sit in that place of not knowing the answers while we just figure it out because, you know, we have our parents, we have our grandparents, we have our magazines and billboards and corporations and schools and businesses and governments all telling us how to, how to think and what to value and how, to, how they would like us to be as, as global corporate citizens or customers or whatever we're called. Um, mm. And I think for us as a as a family, 
yeah, to really, um, in terms of um, the issue of and the problem of and the ongoing problem of being on stolen country and how do, how do we make sense of that? How do we make peace with that? Is it possible to? And just to be on country, just to listen to the land and listen to um birds and the winds and before we impose our own ideology onto the garden of course there's observe and interact which is <laughs> interact you know with each other with the world observe ourselves just how yeah how, let let the land um, um guide us to how how the land would like mm. us to be and what does that relationship look like and does the land want us to concrete everything and poison the soil or would the land like to be honoured and nurtured and to be in relationship with us and to see our, our humanure and our, um, our seeds, all of it as a gift of, an, of a true relation, of, of yeah, of relationship. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. I wonder what... What was your, what was the point at which you realised that you wanted to live this way? Was there, I mean, I'm sure there's not a point, but maybe there was an insight or what was the thing that set you on the path to transition from where you were to this and maybe what is, uh, no, it's going to be too big of a question, but I'll ask you that, but I will ask you anyway, like what was some of the, the steps along the way that you you were able to transition or did you just jump right into it? I feel like for me um, that it's been a reclam a story of a transition of reclamation of what I had um, as a kid. I was able to free range uh, along the local creek, which was full of honeysuckle and yabby out of the creek and bring those yabbies home and add them to the pot and mum would make a yabby quiche and I was able to sit out in my undies and light a fire and um and I you know at, at about age seven or eight I felt I was an indigenous boy I, I completely embodied that story and um I so there was a big old gum tree that was probably about three or four hundred years old um, just up the corner from where I grew up in country New South Wales. And so, yeah, I used to spend a whole lot of time around that tree. There were lots of possums, you know, it was a big habitat tree and, um, and the creek was just nearby. And I think just the the childhood, um, I mean, I did later go off to school and, you know, was kind of reformed. <laughs> um, but I feel like, yeah, my adult life and meeting Meg and, and joining our environmentalisms together and uh, really, you know, waking up in our, in our 30s sort of, you know, having followed, as I, as I mentioned before, um, uh, practices in the arts and, and just really looking at our kind of complicit um, uh, involvement in what I later in my doctoral, doctoral work called hyper-techno-civility, which is this hyper-technologically focused relationship-diminished um, culture uh, that is all about tools and technology um, before 
people and trees and environments and and bondedness to mm-hmm. place. And so I just, you know, all I have are things like my my um, paternal grandmother's uh, wild health wisdom of growing up where she would say, um, always let a healthy dog lick your wounds. And we always thought that was pretty crazy. But, um, you know, I always did um, because I was given permission. And, you know, as I became older, I realized that every time I had a cut on my foot and, and the family dog would lick my wounds, it would be- become the wound. And it was like, wow, this is sort of like the remnants of ancestral knowledge in my grandmother that I haven't lost. And that's such a beautiful thing. And I feel like as modern subjects of capital, we're raised to say the past is irrelevant. Don't worry about the stories of the old. They're all just primitive and barbaric. Um, This is only the present and the future is is important. Um, And therefore, we're sort of at sea. We kind of have no, we have no, um, we're bobbing around uh, without those connection stories and those connection medicines and those, those things that make us well and healthy and, and free of anxiety. So I, I, I think that, um, like, as Meg was saying before, um, shame and or sitting in the guilt is important, but as long as it's productive guilt and productive shame, because there's nothing like festering guilt and shame. It just brings more trouble and trauma into the world. And and white, unproductive guilt is a devastation to the land and to people. Um, And so, yeah, I I feel like, yes, it's important to recognise the different types of guilts and shames and, and to say, well, actually, I want to use this guilt and shame to be active and and to actively um well in my case reclaim what i came to understand that i lost mm. yeah so the, the with the work that you're doing in in all different aspects it is about this reclaiming and sharing and sharing the that the love and kindness and and connection and and you do this through so many different ways through through how you're living, how you share, how you live, how you're running, as you mentioned earlier, a, a bush school as well. Can you tell us about some of the some of those ways that you're through what you're doing as artists, as family, as performance art, as parents, that you're finding ways to help to share the kind of work that you're doing and the kind of thinking and the kind of being and kind of loving that that is just inherent in what you do. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but something that we're often saying to Woody, our nearly nine-year-old, if you want something in the world, it's up to you to create it. And instead of waiting for other people to to do it or to give you what you need, it's up to you to speak up and to make that a reality. And so we we try to embody that in our lives as parents and as a family and as an art collective. And, for example, um, three or four years ago I was um, wanting to start a fermenting group and I was hoping that some, you know, I needed 
people to troubleshoot with. I needed to say, why is my ferment all stinky or why is this all gloopy or why is it bubbling or why isn't it bubbling or why has this got mould on it or whatever it was. Um, So instead of just hoping for a group and hoping for this community to uh, appear, um, I just, we had a dinner here. We're going to start a fermenting group. Uh, Everybody bring a dish, doesn't have to be fermented. Um, people came and, um, yeah, we just started a free monthly uh, fermentation group called Dalesford Culture Club and, yeah, it's been going strong ever since. <laughs> and, yeah, just a way to create community and all the things we do, we run, um, all the different groups we run uh, non-monetarily is it either a gift exchange or just a um, flat non-monetary exchange? Um, so we have um, also take volunteers here. Um, so we run um, uh, applied neo. <laughs> I can't remember um, the School of Applied Neo Peasantry, um, and we call um, the properties called Tree Elbow, and we call it Tree Elbow University. And again, that's non-monetary and just a way to. Um, exchange knowledges, exchange labour, exchange microbes when we can, we're not in lockdown and we can have people here. Um, yeah, just a way, another way to share what we do, share our learnings, share those um, ancestral reclamations um, and just to share stories and hear what how other people, um, yeah, go about uh living in a carbon positive way so we also run a bush school um, a weekly bush school uh, called forest and free this is a third iteration so when uh, woody was younger we had our make and play and then that morphed into uh, feral and free and now forest and free so we kind of run it we get burnout stop it for a while and then <laughs> get invigorated and, and restart it but on that um, note with what you mentioned earlier about Woody asking for um, being bold enough to ask for what he needs. I think you know he did say, "Dad, I'd really like for Bush School to to go again." And it was like, "Okay, well that I've heard that there. There's a that's a call to um, to respond to rather than just starting it from nowhere." And so that. Um, and as an unschooling family, it's been really important to have the bush schools because most of the kids are from the local schools. There's about three or four local schools that they come to, okay. come from. Sorry. Um, and that's just a really great way of integrating. Um, so there isn't this sort of us and them between homeschoolers and unschoolers and, and schooled folk. Um, and, yeah, that's those sorts of things have been really important in our journey to make sure that we don't become, um, like, while people call the way that we live quite extreme or radical um, without cars and without supermarket foods and um, giving up so many different things. Um, It's with, you know, our closest, we we call us, we we live in an unintentional community. And so the the neighbours on the street and the relationships to them and the non-judging and the working together and the sharing of, resources and things have you know in terms of um influencing our neighborhood in a permacultural way it's just happened not by telling but actually by just doing and i I, 
that seems to be to me and it's the same with the bush school as well that mm-hmm. seems to be the most um exciting thing just for two hours a week the kids uh can get out of quite controlled environments in school they're not allowed in schools to climb trees they're not certainly not have knives i i had a pocket knife we were all supposed to have a pocket knife at school when i was at primary school so this is just a generation Mm -hmm. not not every school had kids with pocket knives but ours did um we could have fires at school so fires knives and tree climbing well those things that you can get at this forest school and mainly because we do it non-monetarily we do it um uh, as volunteers and we ask the parents and the kids to share the risk and to say that risk is an ordinary part of life. It's a really necessary part of life. And if we don't, um, uh, and not in a competitive way at all, but in, in, our, own, uh, in our own abilities, if we don't take risks, um, if we, we don't get lost, if we don't take risks, we don't fall out of the tree. If we don't take risks, um, it, and it's not about creating a risky environment. It's a very fine line with kids, you know, like you obviously, we, you know, we, we don't want to create a, a kind of a situation where, where people are, are hurting themselves all the time. But, you know, kids got bitten by jack jumpers and burnt on the fire and fallen out of trees and got lost at dark coming home from a game as the winter sun is going down more and more quickly at the moment. Lots of blackberry scratching. Lots of blackberry scratches. But it builds like a certain level of like um, capability and resilience and strength and independence. And, you know, I also um, have a couple of home, um, not homeschoolers, unschoolers here in my place. And um, and they often, they're a little bit older than Woody now. um, So they're 12 and 14. And they'll just go off with a couple of mates who are from here. Some are from school, some are not. And they'll go camping at night somewhere around the river. I don't know where they are, but I know that they're somewhere within the Crystal Waters village and they they take stuff to cook up, they find things, they've got their their knives and whatever. And I but I know that they're safe, you know, because they're they're aware. They're aware of the the dangers. They're aware of where they need to to be, where they need where they could get help, how they can manage themselves, how they can respectfully be. In, in nature, um, you know, like where do they go to the toilet? You know, like how, how does that even happen or how do they cook their food and um, where do they get safe drinking water from? They know all of that and they can negotiate their way around. So I think while it seems like it could be seen to be an unsafe thing, it's, I feel so confident that I know that these kids become yeah. responsible when they're independently there by themselves, when they're just a, even a little bit older you know my eight-year-old I probably wouldn't yet let go out independently at night with another group of eight-year-olds yet maybe soon (laughs) yeah Yeah. we we feel the same yeah Yeah. but but soon yeah soon yeah did sorry did you uh no soon (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean I think this I'd love to hear more about, as well as the bush school, your your other thoughts around how you unschool and and I you know I I hear what you're saying about your schooling and and how things had shifted and changed when you did go to school. I'm just wondering how how are you approaching um, 
well, this kind of this two questions before I lose the other one about about the unschooling, and the other one is about working. So they're two quite different questions, but really thinking about if most of your things happen as in the gift economy, and how do you how do you see work? What is work to you? What does that mean? So you know, work and schooling—they're kind of for me they end up being so intertwined, which is I guess why I'm asking you the questions together because in my life they are they tend to be ending up that way. Yes, um, maybe I'll take the unschooling bit and you yeah. take the work bit. Um, <laughs> so unschooling. Um, so I might just. Uh, talk about the differences between unschooling and homeschooling for people who might not be um, across just the languaging of it. Um, So homeschooling is where you have um, a curriculum and you have lessons and um, usually it's it's schoolwork and it's bookwork and often the um, the parents become the teachers. So it's still, um, it's, the curriculum is usually based on uh, the parents or the uh, the governments or the education uh, system's um, ethics or imperatives. Um, so we really didn't want that uh, for our kids. Um, we really wanted uh, much more uh, child-led learning, which is what unschooling is, and yeah, we call ourselves an unschooling family. So it's not just Woody who's unschooled, we're all unschooling. Mm. Um, and community schooling and school of the world and soon to be school of the road. And we'll talk a little bit about our next adventure soon. Um, yeah, so we, in our household, we create uh, a very specific framework, a cultural framework, and Woody is free to be to do whatever he wants inside that, of course, within with limits. Um, but for example, we're not, um, it's not two parents who are working uh, full time, and it's not just a kid on an iPad uh, playing Minecraft. Although I understand um, why parents do give their kids iPads to play Minecraft, um, but it's that. Um, that kind of activity doesn't suit our um, our worldview and what we're trying to to um, to do in this household. And what we're trying to do in this household is really um, is to live by uh, permaculture principles, to live um, with as much integrity as we can, which means living according to our values. And our values are um, not we don't value. Um, competition, we don't value uh, greed, we don't value um, excessive accumulation, Um, we don't value uh, polluting and buying things in plastic packaging that's single use. We're really trying to live much more in harmony and in relationship uh, with our um, uh with the with our with the world <laughs> um and yeah to so the thing so the activities that woody chooses to do are up to him so he sometimes he 
um, he plays violin. So sometimes he plays violin. So he has two formal classes a week. So that's violin classes and clay classes. And he, um, yeah, anyone can help. I can't think. It's just our life, what we do. It's like what is, what. Is, exactly. Know? I mean, that that describes it in fine. itself. I mean, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the two formal classes are, are not all that formal. Like Woody learns clay through a, a, a community um, run cooperative, clay space it's called, and lots of kids learn there. And so they have a, a main teacher, Kim, who's wonderful, and she just goes between the kids and they can get on with any of the projects and she can instruct as they need and sort of offer advice. And all the other kids who go there are go to school yeah and then uh adam is woody's violin teacher he comes here for an hour every week and uh helps woody um integrate uh the family songs that woody loved like woody so that the songs that we're taking um with us and we've written so far on the road um uh are the songs that woody has selected so we've got i don't know 20 or 30 songs but he's chosen nine to um to take to the next level in terms of his violin. So um, it's it's so Meg and I do a recording of uh of the song we're working on, send it through to Adam, and Adam brings it to Woody um, in the lesson, and then they work out uh, a fiddle, the fiddle role for it, and which is really great. So again, that's kind of formal. I, I guess it's more formal than clay. But so that's just one hour a week. And there's been a number of times where he's maybe three times in the last three years where he said, I really don't want to do it. Violin is too hard. And we've, because we don't, uh, as Meg explained, unschooling is not about any form of control. It's actually all about the child um, uh, directing his or her path of inquiry. And um, sometimes that's just, sitting on a couch or staring out the window or and sometimes that's really engaged in the project in the flow um, uh, of his own uh, making so um but yeah staying we've just said to him look there uh to have an experience of what if you want to call this we're forcing you <laughs> to have an experience of one hour a week so that even if violin is that you know what forced learning is, we know that you get a lot more enjoyment out of it and most times you love it and you turn up. But it, at right now you're seeing this as us enforcing that Adam comes every week. Um, then just that's that's the learning, just to know. We don't, we don't want to do that for all, all week, but at least to know that... Um, to, so there, therefore you can... Uh, connect with and understand what kids at school are going through um, because they're you know while there's project-based learning and there's all sorts, sorts of things that do happen in school a lot of the time is um, a top-down curriculum that's not even augmented by the the the, the teacher it's it's state down and the mm -hmm. teacher has a little bit of influence and the kids have almost no influence on what they do so um, just sort of explaining that these are the structures that um, he, yeah, that, that to understand even what his parents had to go through um, and also that sticking to things. Um, while 
unschooling is really about creating an environment where you don't even have to have this conversation where where sticking to things is is irrelevant because kids are so motivated generally as unschoolers so much more motivated um, because they can direct their their ship Mm. i had a conversation with my son recently he doesn't like the term unschooler Mm. and we don't know another term to use because it's you know, we're, we're doing very much like what you're doing and um, but he kind of feels like it It doesn't, it's sort of saying what it's not, not what it is. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know, I'd love to find out another term if you ever come across one <laughs> to kind of play around. I've tasked him with the thing, well, what do you call your learning? He's just going, I don't know, it just is, I just done. I'm just being me, you know. And, of course, it, yeah, we're not, it's not like we're, like with artist as family when we decided to call ourselves that because we're not artists over here and parents mm. over here and, you know, gardeners over here. It's all one. And it's the same thing with unschooling. We're not schooling over here and we're not just being kids over here and we're being with other kids here. It's all yeah. one beautiful compost. Yeah. yeah. I think self-directed learning or self-directed mm. education or, or our friend Jen Ridley um talks about it as family education mm. because in many ways the kids are growing up in a family context and the family is generally connected to a community and so and that's really important with unschooling or alternative forms just to the connectedness to community i mean one of the great alarms of people uh you know when they hear that we're homeschooling or unschooling um it's usually collapsed as homeschooling but um uh, is well, how are they going to socialize? <laughs> it's like, well, actually, it's, that's a really interesting question because socialization is engineered in school and it's it's usually engineered to a year group. So, in, in, in a kind of healthy village scenario, uh, children can engage with many different people from elders right down to little babies. And so, what we find in our what we've found in our unschooling experience is that um, our children and other unschooled schooling children and homeschooling children are able to connect with um, different age groups very easily. Whereas mm. in, at school, it's 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 so socially engineered that you, and I mean, I even have um, remet, recalls of this. I didn't know anyone really below me at school. No, no one counted. Maybe the year above me did. But it was, that's like, that's a disconnection. That's just another disconnection. Mm. So, you know, I mean, we won't go on about <laughs> our problems with schools. Um, they're, they're really, um, we, can, we can talk about that later, but or in another. <laughs> yeah, so, I, well, thank you for that. I mean, it's a, I think what you're saying too is this very much about it being part, it's an extension of, of the whole way of, of being that you're, expressing as a family and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you <clears throat> express your you know like your approach to to work and economy sort of the radical home economy approach and and what does that what does that look like in artists family your work life I, even like I know I know that it's all one but like if we sort of have to look at that context what does that how do you describe that um, so in terms of work life, there's non-monetary work and there's monetary work. And, again, 
like your son, I don't like the term non-monetary because it explains what it's not. Um, so maybe we'll just call it the gift economy. Um, but in terms of our monetary work, um, we are able to uh, work. So I work two days a week uh, in the formal monetary economy um, and five days in the gift economy and Patrick seven days in the gift economy. Um, we've also got um, a small shed that uh, Patrick uh, has built out of reclaimed materials that's on the, um, the weekend holiday market because we live in a very touristy area. Um, so we go without a lot of things, which is how we are able to uh, live by not working in the formal monetary economy very much. Um, yeah, so as Patrick said, so uh, just over 10 years ago, we both sold our cars and we uh, don't fly overseas. Um, we don't fly anywhere. Um, we, um, yeah, we don't shop at supermarkets. We don't go, we don't have a lot of, I mean, you can see our home here for people who are watching this on, on YouTube, the visual, um, but we have things, but we don't, we're not huge consumers. That's just not part of our, our story, um, which means that we are able to focus our attention on the things that are very important to us, which is staying home and not just because we're in lockdown, um, but be, really being part of really embedded on the land here um, and um, in our local community. So give back, be part of all the different community groups that we're part of and that we facilitate really give back to the forest here, be, be in service to what I like how Patrick terms it, be in service to the living of the world. And, um, yeah, I mean, we have, in terms of income, we have, we run house and garden tours. Um, we wrote a book several years ago. Um, you occasionally get a royalty check. Yeah, we get lending rights for <laughs> the book is borrowed, lent out in libraries. Even we tried to talk our publisher into having it as a uh, Creative Commons book. <laughs> they just laughed at us. So. Yeah, I mean, we have a small solar system on our roof. Um, we've got water tanks. So we, you know, we don't use toilet paper, for example, in the house. We just use family cloth. So putting over the years, you know, turning the gas off, then when we um, moved into the house, there was gas hot water, gas um, stove top and gas heat, um, gas heating. Um, so we, yeah, we had spent time in an anti-colcine gas blockade and when we returned home, we just didn't feel comfortable switching on the gas anymore. Um, so we put certain things in place and so now we have a, a wood heater um, that we use for eight or nine different appliances. So it heats our hot water, it heats our house, it, uh, dries our clothes, we bake in it, we do roasts in it, it's our dehydrator. Um, it took two and yeah. a half years to pay for that um, timber fuel um, power hub being our stove. And as Magda said, it, it runs so many different appliances. It, um, but it, it's more than that. It's a, the, it's a connection to the nearby forests when we go to look for wood. When we uh, empty the, the stove of the ash and the potash, we separate them and make activated biochar with the charcoal and we, we, we have potash and then that goes back to the forest from 
where it came. And so that people sort of diss wood energy um, just at the at the emissions point um, from the chimney, particularly um, if it's not a very efficient heater. But in terms of like having most of your energy needs, and I think we have electric our electricity needs are uh, just two just over two kilowatt hours a, a day. And the average in Australia is 18 and the average in America is 28. So that's quite a, you know, a low energy household. And, and so um, our energy comes from our walked for way of being in the world or bicycle, because we use a bicycle trailer to, to, to go and, and retrieve it. And there's, so there's about an hour a, a day of being in the forest, uh, Woody, that's a big part of his and my connectedness and our, our learning in the forest is going out to get the wood. And so it's an hour to go and get the wood, bring it back, chop it, stack it, and bring it in. So that's on average a day and there's about three hours um, towards food um, a day. So there's a, it's a really a four-hour working day for the nuts and bolts for our food and energy and medicine resources. And so we always like to say that permaculture provides an opportunity to attend to food, energy, and medicine um, capitalisms. So it's not to say that we won't ever not, you know, that we you know, will occasionally go to a supermarket if we're away from home. We will go to a chemist if we need to, if one of us gets sick. But because of the way we live, we very rarely get sick. Um, and we, uh, the three of them, keep us in, you know, collecting, collecting the, the, the wood that's going to power the house and then to grow the food that's going to power ourselves and then to put that human waste back into a, a very well-organised um, uh, composting si system, a human era composting system, which goes back into the soil to feed. So I think those things, those processes are relational-based, but in a nuts and bolts ec economic sense, they're, hard, they're, they're four hours a, a day mm. um, and then to pay for the kind of tenure the privilege as Meg said Meg does the two out two days a week um, in the formal economy and we've got this little very affordable Airbnb um, which is not a house it's not it's it, you know people couldn't actually live there but very low budget people used to come to Dalesford such as Meg and I because we could afford to actually come take the waters go for bushwalks um, but it's everything is high end now, so we really like to. Our little shack, it's called the Permi Love Shack, is is ninety bucks a night, and it it pretty much services our mortgage. So we get three nights a week um, on average throughout the year that it's it's rented, and so that cancels out the big global, so the Airbnb global monopoly and the the mortgage monopoly just sort of cancel each other out and then we can get on. Get on with your life, yeah. <laughs> on, on, on the important stuff, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And, it's, and I, I love the fact that you're saying that it's not, and all of those things are not, are not separated, they're integrated, like you're saying, going and attending to your energy needs is the time that you're also caring for the forest and also building relationships with your son. And, you know, there, there are no separations in that way, like going to work, paying for this, doing that. It, it all becomes this, this beautiful um, integrated whole. I wonder, like during COVID, 
I noticed that you spent a lot of time making some beautiful films about the things that you do, the way that you access your food and and process your food and and lots of other things. I wonder how how was the response to your to your way of living during COVID? Do you get lots more people coming to you saying, how do you do what you do? We we kind of really feel like we need to know more about this now. Was there a shift that you noticed? Uh, yes, there was definitely a shift. Um, and I think as people really realised uh, how unstable centralised systems were that they were relying on for their food, um, mainly for their food, but also for their their goods that they were buying, um, when when yeah when they realised how unstable they would, people were really open to uh, to new ways of of being and also very old ways of being. Um, yeah, so we, which is how we have been living for a long time. So, yeah, it was really, um, and also, yeah, I feel like we've been preparing for a pandemic for many years, although we didn't know it at the time, as as I'm sure it was in your household too, mm-hmm. that you're home-based, that you're growing a lot of your own food, that you don't rely on these big external systems. Um, yeah, so when people had that wake-up call when COVID hit. Mm. Um, yeah, lots of permies around the world were seeing great interest in, in their work and in permaculture as a, as a really positive solution. Yeah, you can say everything you want about climate change and ecological crises and pollution in, in, in you know, the Pacific trash vortex and, um, you know, keep creating the... the the arguments, but unless you see empty supermarket shelves, mm. it doesn't, you know, it's, that's the thing that really galvanises people. That's the thing that actually says, oh, wow, those nutters across the road, or those, mm. <laughs> you know, is that what they're on about? Oh, that's, that's oh, right, I get the connection now. Mm. Um, so, and there's been this, um, yeah, in, I mean, it, after the first I can't remember I think we're in the fourth lockdown here in Victoria <laughs> but um, um we're taking taking one for the team for the rest of the country um, <laughs> thank you but, um, yeah after one or two of them we got very depressed because we saw this interest we we had time to um because we weren't doing our community work we thought well let's we can do on more online and we didn't have stuff. volunteers yet. yeah no volunteers um so uh, we had we had time to make these films, and um, that was a really special time. But then coming out of it, and then seeing the trucks gear back up into mm. the old story, um, yeah, it was very very disappointing. But but at, sort of several months on from that, and and seeing uh, this sort of continual world in crises, um, and you know. Capitalism, of course, uses crises uh, to its advantage. It all, I, I think, um, is it Naomi Klein who wrote Disaster Capitalism? Um, but there's many theorists who have looked at just how capitalism needs crises to generate a whole lot of income. And so while people's jobs are affected and um, people's, uh, you know, livelihoods are very vulnerable at the moment there's somebody making lots of money off this <laughs> all around the world but um so you but but also i think people are recognizing well that 
this is an opportunity for regenerative thinking and transition towns and permaculture. And I mean, Meg works for David Holmgren and you've seen just a huge amount of interest in permaculture and retro suburbia is like a number one seller, even though it's had not a single uh, piece of mainstream media press in Australia. It's like sold more for an $80 book because um, it's such a, it's a huge Bible. It's a very expensive book, particularly for those, mo- most of us are low income who are, who are wanting it. Many of us are. Um, so yeah, to, to have sold so many uh, copies and, and of course the ebook copy, which is uh, pay what you feel uh, has been tens of thousands of copies of that. So to make that much more equitable and distribute uh, accessible economically. You're heading on a, a different adventure coming up very soon. You have been on, uh, you, you mentioned the book earlier that of a previous adventure you've been on and any of the links that we you talked about, so your book or um, any of your websites or anything like that, we can put down below so people can follow, follow through on them. But <clears throat> do you want to maybe speak a little bit about the adventure that you're about to embark upon and 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 maybe a little bit um too about your, the previous one sure um so seven years ago we uh took off we rented out our house we um found people to uh cover all of all that diff, our, um, different roles in the different community groups that we were um facilitating and we um there were five of us on two bikes so we've got an older boy he's now 19 but he was 11 going on 12 uh, on that trip so he and Patrick and our dog Zero were uh, on the tandem and I had Woody on the back of my bike so we left on bicycles and we didn't know where we were going we just were heading north and we were just going on a family holiday I mean how do you take permaculture we know about permaculture working in settlements but how do you what does permaculture look like on the road so we went on a journey to find out so the the focus was uh feral foods so eating uh, lots of foraging lots of hunting fishing um and we had um, a couple of tents so we didn't really have to spend a lot of money and so we um we wrote about that uh, adventure and we uh, the book is called the art of free travel a frugal family adventure mm-hmm. and we are now so last year we were actually about to head off on a hitchhiking adventure um just backpacks and musical instruments and just going to take off but then covid hit mm-hmm. and we couldn't go very far at all <laughs> just as far as our front, <laughs> front lawn not there's lawn, but food forest. Um, and so we're ready for the next adventure. And so we are heading off in a couple of months on another cycling uh, escapade. Uh, so Patrick um, and Woody will be on the tandem this time and I'll have zero on my bike. And, again, lots of drifting, lots of uh, trying to offer ourselves as um to be in service to the communities that we find ourselves in. Um, I think that's the thing for us is that is the drifting, but also when we come to a place that has a need to to drop drop and to participate, and but not as in our own community, we've become I guess community actors and our leaders in a number of different things. So it's really nice just to get in 
and be one of the participants and not have to organize anything but just actually be there and be solid and to to give in that way um and you know uh, there's um there's so many ways to give as well and it, it, you know story sharing stories is a, is really a a beautiful way to give and we'll be traveling with our instruments as meg said and so we'll be um sharing our story through song um as much as by meeting people and hearing their stories and, and exchanging yarns so tell me more about your about your songs you you write music you write music as a family you do you write I, you also bring old stories and weave them into your music as well is that right maybe yep, so some of our songs um we have written both the music and uh the lyrics and some of them we take lyrics from um various different places um some of them are really old some of them more contemporary and where we put them to music sometimes we reinterpret the the lyrics and yeah we just it, yeah what are you gonna say yeah no i yeah it's i mean it, we're not musicians yeah. <laughs> we are we are um storytellers that use instruments um really and yeah. just I mean, we use, yeah, we, we use writing, we use film, we use music, whatever way that we can share our stories. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking with one of the, there's a young refugee man who I work with in um, Kakamu Refugee Settlement and he had the opportunity to, to be part of this permaculture course that was running in the community for, for local young people. So it's like free permaculture happening. And so he's part of that and he, he was he took that and he just went this is this is so important for our community not just about the food and caring for land but actually having some kind of sense of of hope where there's so much hopelessness i think this is so important that i want to be able to share this with you throughout this refugee settlement how do i do that the best way i can see is by singing it and sing it in a way that is that is that attracts people to hear the story. Because I think it's a bit like what you were saying before, Patrick, about you can kind of talk about this, you can talk about what's going on in the world and we need, you know, changes to happen. But how do you create a different way of being that attracts people in to sort of notice? And it could be the crisis of things not on the shelves, but what other ways do people come in to kind of come a bit close they kind of lean in to see what's happening and that what where you started this conversation with that sort of sense of you know joy and connection and belonging and healing and ritual and dance and music and all of that part of of life and if that's infused with the kind of stories that you want to tell about permaculture and living uh, a neo peasantry life it has so much, oh, there's so much richness and depth in in the stories that come through that and in the music that you share. And so you're going to be sharing these stories and songs I hear as you're going around. How, how does that work? Are you just going to kind of pull up your bike on the start, side of the street and start singing a song? Or? Yes. Yeah. So we've, yeah, we've um, been on hitchhiking and busking uh, journeys uh, previously mm-hmm. and all we had money we had to spend was the money that arrived in our violin case (laughs) 
yeah, so we're we're going to yeah try our luck at busking again and yeah and just yeah find a campfire and <laughs> so we need about thirty five dollars a day to live when we're on the road. So um, we're not great musicians, but <laughs> we we reckon we we um, might get a, enough coin to do that and hopefully have bring some um, smiles and some some heart a warm hearts to to folk. And um, it's also just a, a, yeah, just a nice thing to do. Um, I mean, busking is can be can be an imposition into public space, so we want to be sensitive about that as well. Not just sort of impose ourselves on onto a town and a place um, to sort of feel our way sensitively in that. So we don't really know how it's going to work, but um, but I know that if I saw yeah. a family rock up on bicycles, obviously carrying. <laughs> They're home with them, yeah. um, with their dog, and then start playing. I would be yeah. very interested in what and, they had to see. And that. I feel like, yeah, that, that's right, because we're all schooled in this sort of um, virtuosic tradition that you have to be a good musician, otherwise don't bother. Mm. And, and like, we, we really sort of turn that on their heads and say, well, we're not really musicians. We, we really want to sing because sing is me- song is medicine. Like, mm. to sing is just such a, mm. a healthy thing. So it's a part of our medicine but then we've also had comments back like oh i haven't seen a family playing music for years Mm. and that brought someone joy Mm. it's not like necessarily our story or or how how Mm. we're sounding or what's genre of music it's actually just seeing a family playing music in a public park um or even just a family doing something meaningful together yes Yes. that even itself yeah yeah yeah, so I think that, um, yeah, the sensitivities are not to impose, but there's also, well, um, you know, if, yeah, the, the, the little bit of that we've done in the past has, has, has given a, a really joyful feedback um, to say, yes, actually, this is something that is valuable and, and brings joy. And for you too, I'm kind of hearing there's this sense of a freedom of the drifting of being on the road that there's like something about that that's really important for you that that you have this very home home based lifestyle but the possibilities of of heading off and flying and migrating for a bit and coming back home is is part of a replenishing for your energy is that is that what i'm am i reading that right or Definitely. Um, and also to, although we um, are not strict followers of clock time and not having a child at school certainly helps with that. You know, we I work two days a week. I still, we still have appointments. You know, we were meeting you at 12 o'clock to <laughs> be part of this podcast and really seeing time as or linear clock time as a construct and seeing it as a great tool of colonisation and really looking at um, our our time away and all the different ways that we can when we're here at home, how we can decolonise ourselves. And it's not just to do, I don't see colonisation just to do with um, black, indigenous people of colour, it's to do with all of us. And if we are going to be um, working very hard on the project of decolonization, we need to know what that looks like. What does decolonization actually look like? So taking 
you know, not putting our kids in school, really trying to live without money as much as possible, living without... Um, Dependency on white institutions. Yeah. I think that's a big one. Yeah. Including the monetary system, um, uh, which is inherently uh, uh, a form of patriarchy, of oppressive patriarchy. Um, so while, of course, we're collecting coins, the majority of the the economy on the road is um, what the land bears forth. And I, I think that the foraging and just like at home, foraging and the, the, the hunting and the fishing aspects, um, as well as the bartering and the exchanging um, or the gifting um, uh, are really big parts of decolonizing our economic realm as well like that's that's really a big part of our story and it's not to yeah i mean I, we can i mean obviously we have a you know a mortgage as already explained and we we are not um anti money in the absolute sense but it is an economy that must grow and so what we've done over the last 12 or 13 years is to put money into 25% of our overall economy. Mm-hmm. And so that has been a really great transition. And um, because, yes, money is, is necessary to a, to a degree, but the growing of it or to see conceive yourself as being wholly dependent, 100% dependent on money um, is, is you are you are in that colonised group of economy because it, it once you start to actually decouple aspects of your economy from it and put it into degrowth, then um, you're starting to decolonise your economic um, form. Mm. Mm. Well, I wish you all the best in your big adventures and maybe it might bring you past our place. That would be so amazing. I don't know whether you're going west or north yet, but we don't know. Yet. So, so, so welcome to come and yeah. join us up here if you get this way. Yeah. Okay. But we'd love to play you a song, all right? Before oh, that would be amazing. Okay, we'll play. Yeah, so this one um, is a beautiful poem that my mum sent through a few uh, weeks ago. Um, by an Irish poet called, or an American poet called Marth, Martha Postlewaite, and it's called The Clearing. <clears throat> Do not try to save the whole world or do anything grandiose. Instead, find a clearing in the dense forest of your life and wait there patiently until the song that is your life falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize and greet it falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize and greet it. Only then will you know how to give yourself to this world so worthy of Only then will you know how to give yourself to this world so worthy of rescue.
Instead, find a clearing in the dense forest of your mind. Wait there patiently until the song that is your life falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize and greet it. Falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize and greet it. Only then will you know how to give yourself to this world so worthy of rescue. Only then will you know how to give yourself to this world so worthy of rescue. Only then will you know how to give yourself to this world so worthy of rescue. To give yourself to this world so worthy of rescue. <laughs> oh, that was so beautiful. What a gift to have someone send you such amazing poetry to be able to turn into music like that, too. Oh. Wow. Well, I, as you were singing, I was just thinking, oh, I would so love you to come here and come and sing up a storm with the community here. That would be amazing. We will one day, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today to, to talk talk with me here. And um, like I said before, um, any any links that we talked about or books or journeys or references that you mentioned, we can put in the in the links down below so that people can follow that up and find out more. And maybe there's a place people can follow you on your journey. Are, are, are you going to be somehow dropping in links where you are and what you're doing or are you just going off, off grid? No, um, we're actually going to store it. We are. Way, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we um, are very reluctantly on social media. So we've been uh, working with some friends in a gift exchange. So we're going to do a permaculture uh, design of their property and they've been making us a website. So we're trying to get off social media, um, but that will be a bit of a process. Um, It's almost ready to go live. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Well, if you could send me the link to that one and then I can pop that in there too, that would be great. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. And say hello to Woody. I hope he's had a wonderful day at his friend's house today. <laughs> thank Thanks, you so Mara. much for joining me. Great to right. receive all your beautiful questions. So thank you. Thank you. So that's all for today. Thanks so much for joining me. If you like a copy of my top 10 books to read, click the link below, pop in your email, and I'll send it straight to you. You can also watch this interview over on my YouTube channel. I'll put the link below as well. And don't forget to subscribe, leave a comment. And if you've enjoyed it, please consider giving me a star rating. Believe it or not, the more people do this, the more podcast bots will discover this little podcast. So thanks again, and I'll see you again next week.